The Way Out Podcast, episode 89. When high school came around, honestly, I wasn't okay. I wasn't okay with who I was. I wasn't okay with with the way life was. And I wasn't okay with life probably until I got sober, honestly, mm-hmm. because there was a lot of a lot of body issues. I know ne- I never fit in to any crowd. I had very limited friends in high school. I grew up around a lot of money. The more money that was around, the less happy everybody seemed. Welcome. Thank you for joining us on this week's installment of The Way Out sharing stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. The Way Out does not speak on behalf of, nor are we affiliated with any 12-step organization. Our purpose is to share with you, one episode at a time, what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. The Way Out podcast is sponsored by Transitions Daily. Would you like to join a free, anonymous, online group that offers a daily topic email with popular recovery resources accompanied by a secret Facebook group for discussion? Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information about Transitions Daily. Don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends, in meetings, and with sponsees in recovery. Make sure to check out the official website of the Way Out Podcast at www.wayoutcast.com. There you will find links to our latest episodes on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Radio FM. You can also follow the Way Out Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Help us get the message out that lifelong recovery from alcoholism and addiction is possible by giving us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. The Way Out Podcast is on right now. I'm Charlie, and I'll be your host this week as I bring you part one with my dear friend, Raven, who shares her story of addiction, alcoholism, and recovery in only the way she can. Raven's matter-of-fact, tell-it-like-it-is style makes listening to her share on her story ultra-listenable as she starts her story as a girl coming of age in Southern California. A child of divorce, Raven experienced the yin and yang of the wealth on one side and the meager on the other. Raven struggles with self-image, self-esteem, self-harm, sexual abuse, and a progressive drug and alcohol addiction that completely enveloped her life. Listen up. Raven, Welcome to the Way Out Podcast. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us here in studio on the Way Out Podcast. Thank you for being on. Well, thanks for having me. So what I wanted to do today is share your story. I know a lot about your story, but I don't know everything about your story And I think what you have to share will be extremely valuable for the Way Out podcast audience from a recovery standpoint, because you share from a very honest and very sincere and very authentic level. There's not a lot of what I would say 
polish or veneer to what you share, which <laughs> which which I like, and I get allowed out of personally, oh, right? Thanks. That it's not sugar coated, right. it's not sort of glossed over. That you are very honest about where you are on at a particular moment, and it's uh, fucking refreshing. Oh, thanks. Yeah, and I think people connect to that. People connect to that honesty, right? right? We don't all live Facebook lives, right, where everything's just shiny and perfect in, you know, uh, social media land, and we only post, you know, the perfect moments, and um, um, so that's very instructive. So uh, why don't you introduce yourself to the Way Out podcast audience, and uh, then we'll uh, talk a little bit about what it was like for you growing up, family of origin, and then, um, you know, on into, uh, you know, your battle with uh, drugs and alcohol. Oh, joy. Yeah. (laughs) Refreshing, like a glass of water in your face. Just like that. Yeah, like a cold shower. Oh, gosh. My name's Raven, and I live in Minnesota and have a family, husband, two kids, creepy children's. And I've been in recovery a little over seven years, and... And that's all in a row? Yeah. Wow. All in a row. Wow. Seven years, two months, something, something days, working on three months. (laughs) 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 No, I don't have that counter thing on my phone. Um, I, I enjoy recovery on a level that has given me something in my life to look forward to in in the complete aspect, not in just in pieces. And I know from your story that wasn't always the case, that life wasn't always something that you were looking no. forward to. Two. It wasn't. <laughs> so tell me, <laughs> did you grow up in Minnesota? No, I didn't grow up here. This place is weird. <laughs> it is a, not just a little weird either, like a it's lot a, weird. It's very strange. Yeah. I grew up in Southern California. She's so SoCal girl. Oh, God, yeah, I was terrible. <laughs> um, and What was life like growing up for you in Southern California? It was very materialistic. Mm. It was, you had to look a certain way in order to be part of the popular crowd. You had to, you know, smoke weed to be part of the weed crowd. Mm. You had to, this and that and the other crowd, and honestly... The students that were at high school with me, they had the brand new Mercedes Benz, the BMWs. A girl in my graduating class, her dad owned the local Lamborghini business in town. So it was almost as bad as Beverly Hills schools. Right. And that does. Are you allowed to swear? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That does a, a pretty good mind fuck to you. Absolutely. So did you feel like that you didn't belong, didn't fit in? How did you how did you reconcile who you were with 
what the expectations were, which were clearly very, I would venture to say, unattainable for most. Right. Um, how did you reconcile that? Well, before, I, when I was younger, we lived in a, in kind of a low class, not quite poverty level area where it didn't matter what the color of your skin was, all the kids played together. Mm. And when I was seven was when my parents divorced and we moved into this huge house and we were surrounded by money and, um... I didn't have a very humble attitude at the time because I was like eight or nine mm-hmm. and just so overwhelmed with it. Mm-hmm. And then when high school came around, honestly, I wasn't okay. I wasn't okay with who I was. I wasn't okay with with the way life was and I wasn't okay with life probably until I got sober honestly Mm -hmm. because there was a lot of a lot of body issues because your body like I was in the Barbie land absolutely I was in OMG let's go shopping to the mall we can only go to Macy's no we can only go to Bloomingdale's you know and it just it blew me away because I didn't think like that. Mm-hmm. And I know I never fit in to any crowd. I had very limited friends in high school. Um, I would go and sit in a, in a classroom before I had a car. I'd go sit in the classroom during lunchtime and hang out there and when I had a car I'd just sit in my car and watch all the crazy kids come and go because they had to go out to lunch really super fast and then come back and it was too it's everyone's going 100 miles an hour and they're all going different directions Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I hate that Mm -hmm. did you immediately it sounds like you detested that sort of Mm -hmm. reality that people were operating on a very superficial level. Right. Did that bother you? Yeah, it did, because nobody was real. Mm. Everybody was fake. Mm -hmm. Um, I grew up around a lot of money, Mm -hmm. and to where I did a lot of things that most people probably would never have the opportunity to. Mm. Um, And it just, the more money that was around, the less happy everybody seemed. Mm. You know, the stepdad at the time was a multimillionaire. And so I've gotten to fly private jets and fly helicopters and go to a private ranch on weekends and seriously have it all. Like the 1% lives. Yeah. Right? Right. And there was no happiness there. Ah, it amazing. was voided of happiness. This, this thing that everybody seeks, this thing that everybody mortgages their entire lives for. Right. Money. That thing. Money does not and make it you did happy. not and, and you didn't see happiness there no amazing so there, there, I mean what did you see there what instead of happiness what was it 
um, a temporary, oh, let's go for a drive in the Ferrari and wave at people, and we felt great about ourselves, mm. and then you go home, and it's back to ugh. Mm. Um, when you say ugh, I can feel that, by the way. I can feel <sighs> what that feels like. Does it feel empty? Does it feel... Does it feel... Um, it's like the artificial? same thing. It's like the same thing with trying to fill that spot with drugs and alcohol. That feeling. You can't Bingo. feel that mm. God's hole with money. Mm. It mm. doesn't matter how much you have, you're not happy. Yeah. And so you very early on real uh, had an experience with something that was not God. Right. Right. That right. people worshipped like God. Right. And yeah. very early on had that very stark realization or at least feeling inside that this feels yucky. This feels right. not okay. Like, I know it's supposed to be really, really great, but when, when, when nobody's looking anymore and it's just me sitting on my couch with myself... Everything with the stuff that we had had strings strings attached. Mm. So how so? It was if you don't do the stepdad made all the rules, but mom didn't reinforce the rules when he was gone. So there was a two face there. Sure. And how do you know what diet? Difficult to navigate to literally two sets <laughs> of expectations, right? Right. Um. Like I said, my parents divorced, so my sister and I would see our father close to every other weekend, but it probably only ended up being like once a month maybe because mm -hmm. of stupid games, mm -hmm. you know, that were going on mm -hmm. with mm -hmm. a custodial parent. Mm -hmm. And it he was more down to earth. He was more... Like, this is the stuff that matters. He was a very avid churchgoer, only I didn't agree with the religion. Yeah. And um, tried his best to show us what what really mattered in mm. a family. Mm. And then, on the other hand, here I'm signing a contract when I was in sixth grade about how much makeup I could wear and when. Wow. Everything was a contract with the stepfather. Sure. He tried to run the family like, like he a did business. business. Sure. Only it didn't work. Mm. And um, that he despised his sisters. He loved his brother, but his brother had died, you know, with the stepdad. And so he hated family. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I don't know why he married my mom because he hated family. And my. Dad wasn't able to pay child support, and so he used that. Like, he didn't even give my dad a handshake the first time they had met mm. because he only respected people that made more money than mm. him. Those were his friends, the people that made more money That's than him. the rules him. that he played yeah. by. It mm. was so messed up. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had Ferraris and Rolls Royces and Mercedes and, you know. Did you end up presenting that stuff? Is that what? Oh, Did renting? you end up presenting the, the, the things and the trappings and the money? Or was it great? Yeah. Or was it, I mean. It was fun for a minute, just yeah. like drugs are. It yeah. was fun for a minute. And oh, everyone gets to see what you have. And, you know, I remember being 18 years old and he 
threw me out of the house. He's mm-hmm. like, kick me out of the house, you know. And then the next day as I was packing my stuff up to leave, he's like, I'm not kicking you out of the house, you know. You're deciding to leave. And I told him point blank, I'd rather live on the streets than live back in this mm-hmm. house with you. Mm-hmm. Because it was all a money game. Mm. And I was so done at 18. Mm-hmm. Um He's like, well, I'm not paying for college if you move out. I'm like, mm-hmm. I don't fucking care. Right. I don't care. Right. right. That's right. what you have to hold right. over me? It's money? Yeah, right. It was all about it. And so... When's the first time you experimented drugs with drugs or alcohol? Oh. You know, I th- from when I was younger, there were pictures of me sucking on the can of like, sure. you know, here's the last sip of, of alcohol right. and beer. Yeah. You know, Grandpa's Coors can. And this is adorable, right? Right. This is so cute. I think differently now. <laughs> no, not as much. Not. No. Different time, too, because I think back then, too, that it was generally more accepted just to be drinking, you know, sort of right. as a part of, you know, a social interaction. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was a different so time, there was, too. There, yeah. I remember being about 13, 14, and they didn't have, they had a bunch, we had a wine cellar with a bunch of wine in it, but you could tell, you couldn't open those bottles up. Because as soon as you'd open it up, you couldn't seal it back. Right, right. And yeah. right. So I never took any wine from the wine cellar, but they had alcohol out on the boat. Mm-hmm. We had a couple of boats. Mm-hmm. You know, the rich and famous. Right. Here's your own private dock. It's amazing. With your boats right. and sailing teams yeah. and wow. oh my god. I yeah. can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. Um I lived it, and I can't even imagine yeah, right. it. <laughs> right. So there was there was booze that was on the boat that mm-hmm. I would drink, and so that was probably thirteen ish, I think. Um, and I think they noticed it was being gone mm-hmm. when no adults were on there, mm-hmm. so they they <laughs> took it. Right. And it was nasty. It was like shitty whiskey. Mm-hmm. And. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was like yeah and then when I was actually when I was younger younger um, when my mom when we had money because I lived puppy I love you yeah um, the, the uh, recovery dog is the recovery uh, dog that can't control his liquor this is correct <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't have been as funny as it was <laughs> that's why it's you know, Tim brings his dog to right. meetings, can't right. control his liquor. <laughs> <laughs> Therapy dog. Yes. So I remember my mom, when she had extra money, we'd get like a certain type of pizza. And this was when I was like five. Sure. And she would pour me a glass of wine mm. and my sister a glass of mm-hmm. wine. And Breezy hated it. She hated it. And I was like, I hate it too, but I got to keep drinking. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why... I felt like that, like I had to drink it all. And so I know that, you know, those little treats with alcohol, either stolen or given, sure. were was something that I knew that I needed to drink more of. Sure. And sure. I don't know why I thought it that. It was already associated with something that was good, like, uh, you know, right, like special. Yeah. So 
when did it become, when did it change from something that was sort of given to you as a kid and it was cute and it was a treat and, you know, um, into something more? How did that materialize in your life? I know that when I was 14, shit was hitting the fan at home and my mom had two more kids and she would just yell all the time and nothing was good and so I started smoking cigarettes and I started drinking more mm. and I'd go over to friends' houses and I realized that my friends this one particular time that we drank about the same amount of alcohol, but she threw up. Okay. And I'm thinking, that's odd. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I didn't. Hmm. And so there was this weird question. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know where to place the question. So why am I, just, I different, right? Why yeah. can I, why am I able to consume? Right. You know, so. Seemingly without consequence. Right. Like, nobody could tell. Oh, we drank. You know, I'd go out with friends and somebody would buy alcohol and you'd go and hang out somewhere and drink the alcohol and, you know, just act normal. Mm -hmm. You know, just Mm -hmm. act, walk straight. Can Mm -hmm. you walk straight line? Let's practice. Yeah, getting really, really, really effed up (laughs) so that you can then play the game of trying to be normal. Right. Right. So. Which I play that game all the time. All the time. Yeah. You think you're being so slick. So, 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 so smart and slick. <laughs> yeah, and you're just I was about so the stupidest lame. thing. Yeah, it's about <laughs> the stupidest thing that I can recall doing right. to try to get completely twisted. Right. And then try to act normal. Right. So, and I remember being, you know, different grades would have different alcohol things. I knew... So, at our private ranch, which was a very large ranch, um, we had our, a house, like what people would call the cabin here. Mm-hmm. We had a house, only it was huge, and a guest house, which had alcohol in it, too. Um, and I, re- oh, God. yeah, I lived a life that... Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um and there was alcohol, and I remember being in high school with a friend, so probably 15, 16-ish. And so 14 turmoil is happening at home, and home is and becoming... And I ran away from home then. Okay. And because home was, became a... a it was terrible. A, a, it was An intolerable place, and a place that didn't feel okay. It was a dictatorship, mm-hmm. and everything mm-hmm. was... We mm-hmm. had to look busy. Mm. We had to... Sure, sure. It, so it was, if you were caught... Lounging around or whatever, sure. Unless if we were watching TV with the stepfather, we had to be busy doing something. We got really good at looking like we were busy. Oh, wow. Very much like a business. Like when the boss is there. Wow. Wow. That's, wow. Yeah, that's hard to... Mm-hmm. And the home is supposed to be the place where you feel like Love you can and, l- yeah. just be. Just just to be. Yeah. There's very little places in this world right. where we feel like we can just be. So, and home is supposed to be one of them. And at a very important age, right. developmentally for you, you couldn't just be. No. 
So that was since um, she got remarried when I was seven and a half-ish. And so that started the whole... Wow. And then when, when with my sister and I... I think that first year... Was your sister older? Younger. Younger. She was how, two, how, years, two years. Two years younger, yeah. And when the stepdad would come home, we would hide in our closets because we were so afraid. Mm. It was terrible. That's awful. <laughs> that is awful. And this is what money brought. Yeah, I would hate it. I would hate the money. Mm-hmm. I would hate it. Yeah. So... That, I mean, I could see myself being in that situation and wanting to, like, break really expensive vases and shit. Kind of. You know what I yeah. mean? <laughs> that kind of. Right. Yeah. We didn't live in a marble house, yeah. you know? Those are my friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I wow. swear that some of their houses end up like on pal- life- Like palaces. Like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Wow. When that was popular in the 80s, we yeah. actually had people that we knew or friends yeah. of the family that had their houses. That yeah. legit lived yeah. in like freaking palaces. Yeah. Amazing. Right. So that was standard, this whole crazy lifestyle. And the thing is, is that I got to see two extremes. My dad's mm-hmm. humble lifestyle. Yeah. The stepdad and my mom that turned into some weird person most of the time and wasn't herself. And I got to judge for myself what was right and wrong. You had a very real opportunity to look behind the covers, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Ignore the man behind the curtain. Isn't that funny too, because (laughs) we started out this podcast and how, you know, authentic you are, which is interesting because you spent a lot of your Childhood living in a very uh, unauthentic mm-hmm. world. This week's Recovery Revealed segment is brought to you by All Recovery Rings and AllRecoveryRings.com. Would you like a medallion or coin from your favorite recovery program, hand forged into a beautiful ring? Go to AllRecoveryRings.com and choose from over 15 stunning styles, all hand forged by expert craftsmen what are you waiting for do like i did and get your very own recovery ring today we'll be right back with the second half of this week's episode with raven as we take a break for this week's recovery revealed an opportunity to pull the proverbial curtains back on a particular aspect of addiction and recovery I was walking my dog, Louie, this morning, thinking about what this week's Recovery Revealed segment should focus on. A tragic tale of untreated alcoholism struck me like a two-by-four to the skull as I listened to a radio talk show host detail a story featured in the local paper this morning. The story is of a heartbreaking and tragic incident of a man and his wife heading home from dinner in their vehicle with their two young daughters strapped in the back seat. The father, who in the story referred to himself as being a functional drunk at the time, made a fateful decision that would forever alter the lives of everyone in that vehicle. A decision that most people who don't understand addiction and alcoholism struggle mightily to come to grips with. As a recovering addict and alcoholic, I understand intimately that the addict and alcoholic's brain is wired fundamentally different, and that in active addiction, the brain of the addict 
prioritizes their drug of choice above everything else. And to that end, often say and do things they wouldn't dream of doing when not under the influence of drugs or alcohol. The writer of this piece in the Star Tribune, Mary Lynn Smith, does a remarkable job telling the story of what untreated alcoholism can result in. She writes, The night, January 18th, 2013, was like so many other Friday nights that Mandy and John Markle had spent together since meeting seven years earlier at a local bowling alley bar. John, an account manager with a local company, was 36 and ready to settle down when he met Mandy, a 26-year-old school speech pathologist. They married in 2008, settled in a home overlooking Lake Minnetonka, and started a family. Isabel was born in 2010 and Tabitha in 2012. Mandy didn't know it, but she was pregnant with their third child that January night when they went out for dinner. John began drinking that afternoon, which wasn't unusual. He considered himself a functional drunk who often knocked back six to 12 beers in two or three hours. He knew his drinking was a problem, but at least he wasn't his father, who drank a couple of scotch and waters every night after work. John's drinking was limited to beer on the weekend. I was in control. I wasn't falling all over the place, so Mandy didn't say anything. That night at dinner, after having more to drink, he told Mandy he was fine. It was only a 10-minute drive home. Along the way, he thought it would be fun to drive his daughters onto a frozen lake. No, John, don't, Mandy said. She feared the ice. John drove the family's SUV down the boat launch anyway. He veered right into Priest Bay and steered into the channel he had taken his boat through many times in the summer. Home was in the next bay, about a mile away. Then the ice gave way. Water splashed over the hood, and the car began to sink. As the water rose, Mandy punched at the passenger window before she and John found the button to unlock the doors manually. She leaned her petite frame against the console and pushed the door open with her feet. Get out, John ordered. He would unbuckle the girls and hand them to her. He turned around and saw Isabel, the two-and-a-half-year-old. She was in a front-facing car seat, screaming as the frigid water lapped over her feet. John unlatched the two buckles and lifted her onto the windshield. Mandy grabbed the toddler and headed for shore. Brett Nickham, a retired firefighter, was in his driveway talking to a friend. Nickham has lived next to the channel for 12 years and knows the ice is always iffy, so much so that he keeps a pole and life jackets under his deck. One year, he helped pull 13 snowmobiles in one weekend from that very channel. Hearing screams, Nickham walked down to the channel expecting to chase kids off the ice. Instead, he saw a little girl. The mother was holding her little girl up and going under, he said. If I were there 15 seconds later, she would have been under, and so would the little girl. Nickham grabbed 
Isabel and passed her to her friend, who ran with her up to the house. Nickum pulled Mandy from the water and was walking up to his house when he spotted John in the water. The first time John dove back into the submerged car, Tabitha's face was barely above the water. Her car seat was facing the rear. John yanked on the handle to release the seat from its base, but it wouldn't budge. He yanked again and again as water filled the car. It wasn't long before she was underwater, John recalled. He couldn't hold his breath any longer. He surfaced, inhaled the cold air, and dove back to try again. It still wouldn't release. John surfaced a third time and then dove again, pushing his way back to the SUV to unlatch the buckles across Tabitha's waist and chest. He couldn't free her. Her eyes were open. Looking out the back window, he said, I saw bubbles from her nose and mouth. When he surfaced yet again, Nickham was calling to him. How many people are there, he asked. My daughter, Markle screamed. I've got your daughter and your wife, Nickham yelled back. No, my daughter is stuck in the car seat, Markle yelled. Markle's friend called 911 and ran back to the water's edge with the pole. Nickham grabbed it, shimmied it across the ice on his belly, and held it out to Markle. Markle refused to take the pole. He was determined to retrieve Tabitha. Nickham and his friend worried that if he went under the cold water again, he wouldn't resurface alive. He was starting to struggle, the friend recalled. If we don't help John, then he won't get to be the father of the little girl I just carried into the house. Nickham shouted and swore at Markle. The longer you wait, the worse it's going to be. I need you to get out and we'll work on your daughter. Finally, John let himself be pulled onto the ice. By the time the firefighters arrived and freed Tabitha, she'd been under the icy water for nearly 15 minutes. An ambulance rushed her to the Waconia Hospital. In a separate ambulance, John lowered his head. What have I done? He thought. When the police questioned him at the hospital, they asked how many drinks he'd had with dinner. He didn't lie. He'd had three. But he knew the blood test would show far more than that. He'd had five or six beers two hours before they went to dinner. Tabitha was airlifted to Children's Hospital in Minneapolis. There, as they cried and prayed in their vigil over their daughter, John turned to Mandy. I want you to leave me over this, and I would completely understand, he said. Mandy vowed to stay. I made a promise before God, family, and friends, she recalled saying. I said, I would love you for better or worse all the days of our lives. This is our worst, and it can only get better from here. John was grateful, even though he wasn't entirely sure he believed her. I wanted to be the one dying, he recalled. By Monday morning, the news was grim. Tabitha's brain wasn't functioning. The Markles held their nine-month-old baby in their arms one last time. Hennepin County District Judge Jay Quam ordered Markle to tell his story 100 times 
to groups such as first-time DWI offenders and high school students. John's real punishment would be his life of regret. If there's a hell on earth, Mr. Markle, I think you're in it, the judge told him. If you can use the tragedy to prevent someone else from suffering the same amount of pain and tragedy, that I think is probably the best you can do to atone for what happened, Quam said. There but for the grace of God go I. I cannot even remember the countless times I put the lives of my own and other people's children at risk as I drove regularly under the influence, just like John thinking I was just fine. My functional alcoholism lulled me into a false and perilous sense of false security, which was layered thick with my own rationalization and self-justification that I wasn't that drunk and that I drive like this all the time without any consequence. I don't know why I was fortunate enough not to seriously injure or kill someone while behind the wheel impaired by alcohol and other substances. What I do know, unequivocally, is that untreated alcoholism and addiction can and does have tragic consequences. Consequences that cannot be undone. Now back to the second half of part one of my interview with Raven. Listen up. Don't forget, the way we get the message out to those who still suffer is to give this podcast a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. I was drunk and stoned every day Mm -hmm. for years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How long did that go on? Being drunk and stoned? Or on some sort of other substance? Yeah. (laughs) All throughout college. I was still functional. I was still going to classes. I was still studying. I was still taking tests. I was still doing Mm -hmm. all of that. Mm -hmm. But you had your father who was humble, didn't have a lot didn't have a lot of money. He couldn't there was a point in time where my sister, she was very astute at noticing things. Um and she told my mom, Dad doesn't even have money to replace the screens on his windows and he's he just doesn't. He was like bare minimum, hardly had an education you know, and all of that. And so I, that was the point in time where my mom's like, I'm not going to ask for any child support. Mm. And she she wiped his slate clean with mm. that at that point. But I don't, I don't know. That must have been when Breezy was a teenager. I think I was at college at that point. But So let's talk about you. You, you, you essentially run away at mm-hmm. 16? At 14, I 14. ran away. But I didn't want to miss school, so I yeah. went to school the next day. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to be home, but I didn't want to miss you school. You were the worst runner away ever. I didn't want to be druids. <laughs> I had this sense. The thing was is that I, I really threw myself into my studies. Mm-hmm. And I would study all the time because if I was studying, I wouldn't get in trouble for not looking busy because sure. I was studying. Sure. And so I would study. It was a safe activity. Yeah. Yeah. And so I would study. And, and plus, um, I have dyslexia. And so studying was really hard for me. And I had tutors. I had private tutors like my whole high school life because I just, it was hard to learn all these concepts and, you know, failing math a lot. So I'd have to take math at summer school and, 
And so I was always, I was always busy doing stuff with mm-hmm. school. Mm-hmm. So at a certain point in time, I didn't get in trouble for stuff. Mm. Um, but it was interesting because depending on the situation, so we would fly in our private jet to our private ranch at a private house and we would get in trouble if we weren't unpacking or packing up fast enough. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it was just ridiculous. But the studying really, really put me someplace else that Pro- I was... Provided a safe escape yeah. for you to... Yeah. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I uh, ran away. So my parents caught me back at school. <laughs> Again, um, worst and, runner away right, ever. Shut up. <laughs> um, and then at about fourteen or fifteen, the thing was is that I was started to be sexually molested by um, an uncle. So that really mind fucked me. And um, then I started cutting. Mm. Because um, alcohol was getting harder to find because we had moved houses. Uh-huh. And so they, um, it wasn't like this free run-of-the-mill alcohol that I could just find. And plus, leaving the house with having a stepdad that was there, he would photocopy kids' driver's license. He would give them the 20 questions. He, I mean, it was, you know, almost as bad as, I guess, a shotgun. But... Um, you know, dad's polishing the shotgun as you're taking like out the daughter, right? Like that. And so I didn't go a lot of places because it was just not worth the effort to go a lot of places. And so... Um, and so you're dealing with these really powerful emotions triggered by this trauma. Yeah. But you're not able to hit the eject button via alcohol as easily. And I can identify with that when, you know, under 21, mm-hmm. it's hard to find it. Right. And. Because all your so, friends are your age. Bingo. <laughs> bingo. So unless you can convince somebody to buy it for right. you and literally break the law for you. Right. You ain't getting it. Yeah. Uh, so you start cutting. Tell me about that, because from what I understand, uh, was that a way for you to be able to sort of. Um, deal with those emotions deal with the pain that was i would rather have physical pain than emotional Mm. pain so the physical pain actually distracted you from the emotional pain yeah powerful wow yeah wow and so you were in that much pain that what what you what the only thing that you could do was to create enough physical pain to just get you out of it. Yeah. And did the, the cutting become noticeable? No, okay. because you were very good at concealing it. Yeah. I would, so I would I would do it, then I'd wait for it to heal, and then I would do it again. You know, so there wasn't. It never got so hot living on the beach that it that you needed short sleeves all the time unless mm-hmm. you're out in the sun because of the breeze yeah you know the ocean breeze right. living right, in right. like in paradise right yes. and life is so shitty because you know you're being molested and nobody knows and um and you did, and sh- you lived in a in in an environment at home where 
did you you obviously didn't feel safe being able to talk about it? No. How long did it go on? I think three-ish year, like 14, 15, 16, something wow. like that. And then when I was, so, no, 16, I think I was still 16, um, a guy almost raped me, a different person. And that was my, that was my last straw to where I was like, I'm going to fucking kill myself now. Mm-hmm. And uh, shit all got found out. And because that was, uh, you had a, you had a breakdown. You yeah. Had a- and I got, I was in a mental institution for a little bit. And then. And were you able to communicate what had been happening to you? Yeah, well, I had to go, uh, there was a private investigator, not a private, uh, what do they call it, a detective, rather. Mm-hmm. So a detective got called, and I had to go there, then I had to make a phone call to the uncle, and basically entrapment him, entrap him. Into in confessing. The, right, over the phone, because it was recorded, mm-hmm. and so that was... That must that have been was, terribly that, difficult. Yeah. That must have been <laughs> horribly difficult. Yeah. To right. have to be a part of the uh, criminal investigation. Yeah. And then t- I didn't have to go to court because they had the evidence recorded. Mm. You know, because I had to confront him on what he did over the phone. Oof. And then he admitted it over the phone. Wow. And then, you know, it was, I'll never do that again unless God tells me that I'm supposed to. Yeah. Oh, no. Okay. Yeah. You know, there is (laughs) a very interesting line that I remember in some spiritual recovery literature that that, that indicates that very thing. That as soon as I think that I've got a direct line to God, I better be real careful. Mm-hmm. I better be real careful right. because a lot of people have done a lot of really awful things right. thinking and being convinced that they had a direct line right. to God. Right? And a lot of awful acts have been perpetrated on innocent people by people who have thought they had a direct line to God. Wow, that's so, scary. Yeah, that's, that is scary. That's what he said. And then, what was it? It was a few months later, and then, or at the end of that school year, that I think I had graduated. There's some, bl- I started using weed regularly when I was 17, mm-hmm. so there was a wonderful numbness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, mm-hmm. you know, stupid shit happened in college, too. Um, but the drug use at a 17, the alcohol and drug use upped. Significantly. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I got out of that house, then I was going out with guys that were 21 or older that could sure. buy alcohol. Sure. And um, and there was weed because it was Colorado where I went to school. So mm. there's weed everywhere. Mm-hmm. And so I was drunk and stoned every day. Mm-hmm. For years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How long did that go on? Being drunk and stoned? Yeah. Or on some sort of other substance? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All throughout college. Yeah. 
All throughout college. Yeah. I ended up getting married the first time in college. Mm-hmm. And he was a cocaine dealer. Oh. Yeah. So he had the hookup. Yeah. Yeah. And That's rather convenient. Right. Actually, about 18, I went out with this guy who also was got a bunch of cocaine. So I started getting addicted to cocaine when I was 18. Okay. Yeah, it was great. Good times. I have a problem with cocaine. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. You know, it's interesting because, and I've told this on, the, uh, on this podcast before, but uh, I'm so grateful to my younger brother, 18 months younger than me, who came home after doing coke one day and looked at me straight in the eyes with this wild look that I'd never seen in him before. And he wasn't a guy that told me what to do. And he said, D- I don't want you to ever, ever, and I mean fucking ever, try coke. Fucking ever. And I, okay. Did he put the fear of God in he you? He absolutely did. Good. Yep. And I never did it. Good. Yep. Good. Um, so, yeah, cocaine boyfriend at 18, cocaine husband at fucking 20, and he was dealing it. So you got in, you got in deep. Yeah. Yeah, and that's when I started smoking crack. He got into needles. I didn't at that point. Um, I didn't even want to fucking see that shit mm. at that point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then, you know, kind of moved around. Graduated college, actually, because I was very focused on school, and I knew what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I wanted to be a teacher. Oh, wait, I was <laughs> using cocaine <laughs> user teacher, because that's brilliant. Um, and... But you were functional. I mean, you, obviously right. your use had gone, uh, uh, had increased dramatically. Yeah. And you were living a lifestyle that absolutely enabled. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and I was still going. The addiction and the, and, yeah. right? But you were still functional. Yeah, I was still functional. I was still going to classes. Yeah. I was still studying. I was still taking tests. I was still doing mm-hmm. all of that. Mm-hmm. And um, did you use that as a justification in terms of like this is not no, this is okay? I would use dropping acid and studying as a justification. <laughs> <laughs> can't even imagine. I can't even. I would imagine. have to be very careful at how I cut the tabs with acid so that I could study chemistry and calculus. Oh and be my god! Brilliant! Wow! I can't even imagine. I cannot imagine trying to study. Oh yeah! While if tripping the, balls. The, I I would just mildly hallucinate. The thing was, the trick was trying to find the line of how much to take mm. because. If you if you had the the letters and the numbers jumping off the page, you took too much. Yeah, right, <laughs> right, right. And my understanding of the quality control when it came to street acid, it wasn't always real great. I don't know. The stuff I got was pretty good. Anyway, <laughs> back in the day, those hey, are this the thing days. On? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was. You know, I don't know. It was a. I lived in a dormitory, and there were drugs everywhere, all different kinds. Yeah. You could get pretty much anything. You could get peyote. Mm-hmm. I did peyote for the first time there. Oh, my God. I've got the greatest story about peyote. <laughs> so my next-door neighbor, who was a, a, just a ginormous pot dealer, right? And his name was Joe. And you would call him, and he answered the phone, Joe's Pizza how can I help you? And it was just absolutely hilarious. And you'd order your, quote, pizza, which was a bag. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And literally, you'd just go 10 feet. 
You know, because he was literally my next door neighbor right. and he had a room in the garage that his dad had finished off, right? And literally, you go 10 feet, open the door, and he'd open up his mini fridge of, you know, weed. His pizza. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> One day I'm getting the mail after school, right? And Joe's out there and he's like looking around, all sort of like paranoid, right? And he kind of like shuffles up next to me. He's like, Hey, Char. Uh, yeah, Joe? Guess what? Um, what? Dude, I just did pay and I've been tripping for three days, man. <laughs> and I was like, oh, God. That yeah. was, okay, I'm going to go back inside now, Joe. I would recommend you do the same thing, right? Right. So that was, I've never done it, but. No, it was, well, the peyote, this kid, he was Native American because the college I went to, there was a very high population of Native Americans. Mm. And so they used peyote for religious purposes. Sure. So his mom is getting, is making this peyote, which comes from cactus, and she grinds it down into this fine powder, mm -hmm. and you snort it just like you do cocaine. Wow. Yeah. It was great. Wow. <laughs> so anyway. this, you're in this sort of like... Um, I need to use more drugs. Yeah. And all different kinds of drugs yeah, so because you, it's happy. Like a smorgasbord <laughs> of right. drugs right. Uh, that you were... Um, uh, that you were consuming. Oh, it was great. Yeah. And so, uh, and, and I can relate my, my teenage years were absolutely very similar to that in terms of, you know, just whatever, right. you know, yeah. like I'm your huckleberry, let's do this except for Coke. Um, and again, from my perspective, I always felt like you know, I, I still got my great, I still did fairly well in school. I still was able to keep a job down, you know, all these things. So, so by virtue of, you know, these things that still being functional in my life, I was, uh, you know, people would, people who said I had a problem, I would point to those things and I would say, I'm doing just fine. I got a job. I'm doing Nobody fine in school. Nobody told me I had a problem because everybody was in that whole so you whole surrounded order. yourself with people right. that were at least as bad or you worse. know worse right and so when i got married at 20 um that he was way worse than me sure but it's like i married a cocaine dealer right and he had always had different types of weed mm -hmm. and so i was set right now, when is you when enable you married somebody that yeah. absolutely could enable your disease? Right, I know, yeah. but I didn't see that until the second husband, <laughs> because the second husband also dealt cocaine. Hmm. Only he was really bad at it, mm. worse than the first husband, because mm -hmm. he couldn't make any money with it because he used too <laughs> much. Was, yeah, right. So he was worse than me still. Right. You right, know, right, and, right, right. Um, so compared to him, I mean, he's the addict. I'm right. I was I'm not right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the thing was, is that I started seeing other similarities between the first and second husband. And I was like, and the thing is, is that there was a very short time frame between the divorce of the first mm -hmm. and the relationship that started with the, with the second. I can relate to that. So, you know, you just jump from one thing to the next, yep. right? And sometimes yep. they overlap. Sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. And you know what? It, at that time, uh, whatever it was that I thought was going to mm -hmm. make me okay, 
Yeah. Is what I did. And it sounds right. like it was like that for you. Yeah. I was mad. I was so mad. You and had a lot of anger? Well, yeah, I had a lot of anger because there was a lot of pain because mm-hmm. I didn't deal with shit for decades. Yeah. And, yeah. oh, yeah. I have anger, so here, let's just do more drugs. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Did that anger come out? Did people, like, view you as an angry person? I guess when I was under some sort of influence. Mm-hmm. Well, the dope, you know, smoking weed made me really stupid. Mm. So I was easily confusable. Mm-hmm. And to where the second husband used that against me. Sure. And kept me in this state of confusion. Mm, almost like gaslighting you in, in some ways. Like you're the crazy one. Right. Yeah. 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 Right. And, right. um, which is true addict behavior. Yeah. You know? So he was worse than me. Yeah. Yeah. Completely worse. And, you know, honestly, my drug use went from 17 to 35. That's all the time we have for this week. Stay tuned for next week and the conclusion of my interview with my dear friend, Raven. Thank you for being a part of The Way Out where we share stories from people just like you who have recovered from alcoholism and other addictions. If you would like to reach out to the show, you can visit us on the web at wayoutcast.com. That's wayoutcast, all one word, dot com. Or drop your host a friendly email at share at wayoutcast.com. There you can also find links to previous episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podcast Garden. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the podcast, contact me at share at wayoutcast.com. See you next time. And remember, if you don't change, your sobriety day will.